Welcome to Jesus Duck in Christ, a sermonization of the Gospels that may or may not include some bad language. Honestly, I just speak from my heart and see where the hell it goes. So, <clears throat> honestly, this is going to be two weeks worth because last week I forgot. Yesterday I got busy too and forgot to record. Well, I ran out of time to record. And I wasn't going to record it while my wife was trying to sleep. Because hearing her snoring in the background is going to be kind of funny anyway. So here we are in the car in front of Menards and a Coles on Highway 108. Oh, wait, no, that's 108 Street, Highway 100 in West Dallas. And I wanted to start with best-selling author and Bible study leader Liz Curtis Higgs. See, she tells us a story about a lady from Texas named May who confessed Something pretty embarrassing. See, she says a few years ago, she and her husband invited a couple to their home for dinner. The couple brought a pot of tulips as a gift. She says the tulips weren't really that pretty. They were in this plain clay pot with bulbs partially sticking out of the soil, and they were just ugly. But these were friends whom they saw often, and May wanted to take care of the tulips simply because they were from them. So she nurtured the plant, watered it faithfully, fed it plant food, set it outside in the spring, brought it in to the house before the first freeze. She says she would not throw it away as long as it bloomed. One afternoon, about two years later, her youngest son was absentmindedly reached over and rubbed the tulip petals. Oh, don't touch those, honey, May said. It could cause spots. She was absolutely stunned by his reply. But, Mom, this plant isn't real. Sure enough, he was right. For the last two years, May had nurtured a silk plant. It did seem especially hardy, May confessed. That's the way it is sometimes. Those fake things outlasting the original art article. Why do you think the issue of fake news is so significant in today's world? See, there's some incredibly incredulous folks out there. Furthermore, there's instances of those promoting phony goods and concepts are extraordinarily skilled and more listened to than those spouting the truth. Hell, in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in Amsterdam, they sponsored a competition a couple decades ago to determine how many people could actually distinguish between copies of the same paintings and some of their more costly originals. Out of 1,827 participants in the trial, only seven were able to actually distinguish between the real thing and the fake. That's a prominent component of this issue. Some people who spread those lies are exceptionally skilled at it. Why not? Using people for financial gain? Super profitable. Just ask any con woman or man. So naturally, good people occasionally decide that they're going to, quote, fake it till they make it, end quote. I want to go to Billy Graham. Not really a big fan, but you know what? He used to tell a story about a South Carolina man and his family who vacationed in New York City. This was back when My Fair Lady was the fantastic new production on Broadway. Yeah, we're talking way back. So they told all their friends they'd go and see this 
Broadway play. And since nobody else in that small town had ever seen a Broadway play, they were pretty stoked, pretty excited. And everyone was excited for them. So on that day, after they landed and settled to their hotel, they took the cab to the theater. That show was sold out for the whole time they were there. They left, disappointed, heartbroken, that they missed that golden opportunity. And then it set in, that embarrassment that they would have to face in their hometown with that news. So they picked up some discarded tickets from the trash can, bought some programs, picked up the soundtracks, and by the time they got home, they were all singing All I Want and telling everyone how amazing it all was. At least they tried to see that play. A lot of others don't even bother half as much. Which brings us to Jesus calling out the Pharisees and Sadducees with his harshest criticism yet. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, Jesus said on one occasion. So you got to be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on everyone else's shoulders. But they themselves are not even willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything is done for everyone else to see. They make their phylacteries wide, the fringes long. So, stopping point here, just so we can explain that people who wish to show off their devotion will wear small boxes with passages from Scripture on their arms and foreheads, and they were called phylacteries. In the Westminster Bible Companion, Matthew Long notes, the true purpose of these phylacteries and fringes was to keep the faithful ever mindful of God's law and to assist with the worshiper in prayer. But, according to Jesus, the scribes and Pharisees had turned them into a fashion statement. Kind of like modern-day Christians wearing that two-pound cross, sporting that bumper sticker on the car reading, My God's alive, sorry about yours. Or that stupid bracelet, WWJD. So that question can be raised about such practices. Is it faith or flash? Is it praise or just a bunch of pomp? See, Jesus wasn't saying that the Pharisees were terrible people. They were, by the standards of Jesus' times, the pillar of society. But Jesus was saying that some people like to put on a show for their religion. And that's not really authentic. He was arguing that the Pharisees valued their status more than helping others. For them, appearances held a greater significance than sincerity. Because there are those besides the Pharisees who have, come, who have succumbed to the lure of maintaining appearances. Which we've seen in plenty of places. So what Jesus was saying was that pride of position was more important to the Pharisees than the service to the people. Appearance is more important than that authenticity. Obviously, the Pharisees aren't the only ones who have given in to the temptation to put on appearances, are they? I mean, we have a guy running for president who likes to claim that he's a Christian. But at John McCain's funeral, he couldn't say the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. When He's been asked about the Bible. He has no knowledge or understanding of it, clearly. But back in the 1980s, when Italy first began to make the use of seatbelts mandatory in automobiles, there was a psychiatrist in Naples. 
He invented what he called the, quote, security shirt, end quote. It was basically a white t-shirt with a diagonal black stripe painted on it, designed to deceive the police into thinking that the motorist had buckled up. Now, there's some of the older people who are still alive who remember in the 80s when that shit was going on and how much resistance there was among people in the country to wear seatbelts when they were first introduced. Those t-shirts with a diagonal black, spri- black stripe probably sold very well here. And hey, you know what? If you're in a serious accident, maybe a fake doctor, doctor could stitch you up too. Because many people are so far more into appearances than authenticity that it becomes hard to tell which one's which. There was this young guy that I knew. He worked in an investment house back in Vegas and he was about to be a father for the first time. He was so impressed and appreciative at the interest his business associates took in the news that his wife was going to have a baby. Every day, it seemed, one or more of them would drop around the uh, desk to inquire to him about how his wife was doing, what did the dog say, any news yet, how many more days? Yeah, what he didn't know until after the baby was born was that those colleagues had started an office pool on when the baby would arrive. All those colleagues had placed a bet on when the happy occasion would occur. That's why they were interested, not because they cared. The interest in his affair really concerned no nothing more than the greedy desire to win that office pool. And I ain't going to ask anyone if they've ever faked interest in someone because of good business or simply out of courtesy. All of us are guilty of some hypocrisy along those lines when we had to, you know, be a little bit fake instead of just being totally honest and authentic. I got a chuckle from an ad that appeared in a small college town paper during the days before the annual parents' weekend at college. It just so happened that, you know, I was driving through UWM and stopped at a 7-Eleven. But uh, what I thought was funny was that there was an ad by a tavern that frequented by students at the college, I presume. The ad said, bring your parents for lunch Saturday. We will pretend we don't know who you are. Now, it was challenged by the college chaplain, because I saw that up there, too. His version of the same ad on the campus bulletin board read, Bring your parents to Chapel Sunday, and we'll pretend we actually know you. Appearances versus authenticity. It's rampant in our society. By the way, have you ever checked the labels on the grocery items lately? You're going to be in a shock. Now, a lot of manufacturers sell us the same size packages we're accustomed to, but they're putting less of the product in the box. I noticed this with a Betty Crocker cake mix. I don't use cake mixes, mind you, because I hate baking. I don't know why I'm trying to make sour bread right now, but I am. Again, appearances, authenticity, meh. Anyway, I noticed that there were three of the exact same type of Betty Crocker, right? Where It was white cake mix. One box was 16 ounces, the next one right next to it. Same brand, same packaging, everything except for that number. The next number was 13 ounces. That's three ounces less. Looking on the back, all the ingredients were the same, but there was less in the box. What the hell? Another one, this is this got pointed out to me by my son, by the way, was that 
the detergent we use for our uh, laundry had a 61 ounces on one container. Same size container next to it only had 55 ounces. Same box, less soap. Something is wrapped. How it's wrapped doesn't always show us what's on the inside. And that's true with people as well as boxes of detergent and cake mix. The Pharisees whom Jesus criticized were into those appearances rather than authenticity. On this point, Jesus was very opposite from the Pharisees. He was concerned what was in the heart. Not all things appear on the outside. And this dude, Dr. Ed Young, tells of a friend of his when he was young. The man's name was Walter Carroll. He was an atheist. He was a good guy, though. And uh, one Sunday afternoon, his friend Walter looked at Young and said, Eddie, you believe there's a God, right? And then Young said, yeah, Walt, I believe there's a God. Walter looked at him with a raised eyebrow and said, you don't live like it. And Ed replied, kind of confused, what do you mean? And his friend came right back at him, well, you just live like I do. I'm an atheist. I don't believe there's a God, yet you live like, the, and I live like there's no God. We're buddies. You do everything I do. You say there's a God, yet you don't live like there's a God. You don't have enough sense to know that if there is a God, you can get to know him. Live the way he wants you to live. That's the most important thing in life for you guys, isn't it? And Young says that was the greatest sermon that he had ever heard. God used the mouth of an atheist, and he never forgot it. Because he couldn't answer. He went to his room, dropped down on his knees and said, Lord, I know you're there. I believe Jesus is your son. I've gotten away from that. Away from the background that I grew up with. And when I got away from home, I left. So just leave me on yours. Some of us have been there, haven't we? Like a time when how you lived didn't exactly work with what you believed. You live more in tune with the crowd than the cross. It happens. It happens. Happens to me, too. I'm a fucking hypocrite, too. There are times, especially when things are tight and I have a $5 bill and I see that guy on the corner with that cardboard. I pretend I don't see him. And looking back on it, it makes me feel like a shit. I'm not trying to guilt trip anyone here because, like I said, I do it too. But the most effective witness we can make to our faith in Christ is simply to live out what we say we believe. doesn't mean we need to be religious fanatics. We just need to be real. It means not living as fans, but as followers of Jesus. Chuck Swindle, who was a radio Bible teacher, influenced a lot of Christians in his time. And he said that out of all the people in the world, the one he most admired was evangelist Dawson Trotman. And Trotman was the founder of The Navigators, which is a worldwide organization dedicated to training Christian believers to share their faith. Trotman died after helping to rescue two drowning girls. I've mentioned him before a couple years back, I think. But I want to bring him up too because it shows authenticity so much. See, when Dawson passed away, said Swindle, he probably left the legacy of discipleship on this earth that will never be matched except perhaps by the life of Jesus Christ himself. 
Swindle says he believes wholeheartedly in the methods of discipleship that Trotman taught and emulated them throughout his days. Well, Trotman died in 1956 on Shroon Lake in New York. He died of all things, quote, he died of all things in the midst of an area he was an expert in. He drowned. He was an expert swimmer. In the last few moments he had in the water, he lifted one girl out of the water. He went down, got the other girl, lifted her out of the water, and then submerged and wasn't found again until a dragnet found him a few hours later. Time Magazine ran an article on Trotman's life the next week, and they put a caption beneath his name which read, Always holding somebody up. In one sentence, said Swindle, that was Trotman's life, investment in people, holding them up. Now, according to those who knew the dude best, that's why he influenced so many people in Christian discipleship. He lived out what he believed. Nothing fake, nothing phony. He tried his best to follow Jesus. He was a follower of the teacher and a servant of humanity. What more can be said about any human being? See, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. And Trotman was out there practicing exactly what he preached. How about you? Are you giving your all to the teacher? Bill Hybels, who was a senior pastor at Willow Creek Community Church, said it best. He wrote, it's easy to give God 95% of our lives. It's that last 5% that's most difficult. And 95% commitment to Jesus is 5% short. That's what's keeping us from achieving God's dream for our lives. That 5%. Fake news? Fuck it. We've been talking about fake religion today. Pride of position is more important to the Pharisees than to service to the people. Appearances were more important to them than authenticity. And Jesus was the very opposite of the Pharisees. He wasn't concerned about the stoles or the chasuble. He wasn't concerned about the smoke and the praise band. He wasn't concerned about any of that shit. Jesus was concerned with what is in the heart, not how things appear on the outside. The most effective witness we can make to our faith in Jesus is simply to live out what we say we believe. All right, so now that we got the getting real part out of the way, let's get to getting prepared. Because there are 10 young women on their way to a wedding. Five of the girls got a head on their shoulders and got ready for the trip. Making sure they had enough oil to fuel their lamps. Five maidens decided to get their heads twisted around some other shit. Preoccupied with everything else. They forgot. Because it was light when they left their house. To grab some extra oil. Well, that bridegroom was waiting. He was delayed, and their lamps running out of oil. So the dumb ones kind of looked to the smarter ones and said, Hey, can we borrow some oil from you? Our, 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 our lamps are going to go out. 
But they said, nah, go see if you can buy some more from the store. And those girls ran off back to the village to try and find oil for those lamps. It was when they were gone that the bridegroom came. And when they returned to the feast, doors were shut, couldn't get in. You know, something about that wedding is kind of interesting because that this parable of the wise and foolish maidens isn't based on some fairy tale or just something that cooked up in Jesus' head. Even today, that's how middle-class families and Palestinians celebrate weddings. Just like Jesus described 2,000 years ago. So we can even see it today if we really wanted to, if, you know, Gaza was getting turned into a wasteland and... You know, the Palestinians were actually given the humanity, respect, and love that all humanity deserves. Because see, J. Alexander Findlay, he told what he observed during a trip to Palestine. Quote, when we were approaching the gates of a town, I caught sight of ten maidens gaily clad and playing some kind of musical instrument. As they danced along the road in front of our car... I asked what they were doing, and our guide told me they were going to keep the bride company till the bridegroom arrived. I asked him if there was any chance of seeing the wedding, but he shook his head, saying, in effect, well, the wedding could be tonight, or tomorrow night, or hell, it could be in a month. No one ever knows for certain. Then he went on to explain that one of the great things to do, if you could, at a middle-class wedding in Palestine, back when there was a Palestine, was to catch the bridal party napping. So the bridegroom always comes unexpectedly, and sometimes even in the middle of the night. So the question for the morning is this, are you prepared? Are you ready? You got that oil for your lamp? Because who knows when the bridegroom's coming? Who knows what tomorrow might bring? Who knows what kind of severe tests we might confront? Who knows what kind of door might open? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Are we ready? For one thing, are you making the most out of the opportunities God has given you? Zig Ziglar, some motivational speaker guy, he says that about most successful jeweler, jewel thief back in the roaring 20s, this dude by the name of Arthur Berry. He loved to hobnob with the rich and famous of Boston's elite, except he did his hobnobbing at night when they weren't around. See, he wouldn't steal from just anybody. As a matter of fact, the visit from Arthur had become a status symbol among the ladies of Boston's upper crust. Now, the police weren't nearly as taken as a status-oriented thievery as the ladies were. One night they caught him. He got shot three times. He fell through a glass window, and the shattered glass stuck into him. And he lay on the ground in excruciating pain. Not surprisingly, when he came to a conclusion amid the blood, glass, and handcuffs, he's noted as he's reported as mumbling, "Ain't doing this no more." Yeah, I bet. Anyway, to make a long story short, Arthur eventually got out of the prison two decades later. He spent 20 years in the clink. He went to a quiet New England town and settled down. There, he was a respected citizen. He led the local veterans organization, but 
finally leaked out to the press that the most notorious jewel thief of their time was holed up in this tiny New England hamlet. And the nation's media arrived in droves. Like, kind of reminds me of what happened in uh, Cars with Lightning McQueen. You know, he was hiding out in that little town on Route 66. No one knew where the hell he was or anything. And all of a sudden, tippity tip tip, and boom. All the press, all the media just swarms that place. Well, one, one young reporter asked him, Mr. Barry, you stole from a lot of wealthy people in your life as a jewel thief. Let me ask you a question. From whom did you steal the most? Arthur Barry didn't even have to think about it. He answered so fast. I don't think the reporter was ready for it. He said, that's the easiest question I've ever been asked. The man from whom I stole the most was Arthur Barry. You see, I could have been a baron on Wall Street. I could have been a successful businessman having utilized my God-given talents and developed them legitimately. I could have made it big in business, but instead I've spent two-thirds of my life behind bars. Arthur Barry was a thief who stole from himself. He didn't use those God-given talents and opportunities at his disposal ended up haunting him forever. So how about you? If that bridegroom were to come tonight and ask you to give account of your life, could you say that you've taken advantage of the opportunities that God has put in front of you? You know what? Let's narrow this question just a little bit more. Have you been faithful in your service to God and your fellow man? Now let's go back to 1780. In New England, there was this dark day that frightened a lot of people. At noon, it was as dark as early night. The birds were as confused as the people. They sang a final twilight song and fluttered off into the evening dusk, thinking it was evening. The cows came home early. Religious men fell to their knees and begged for their repentance, thinking judgment to come. And the chickens came home to roost. Well, in Hartford, Connecticut, the state legislature was in session and someone moved to adjourn, thinking Armageddon was upon them. But one legislator stood up and said, I'm against adjournment. The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there's no reason to adjourn. And if it is, well, I'd rather be found by God doing my duty. I wish, therefore, candles to be brought. The legislature approved his request, and candles were brought. So, have you been faithful in your service to God and your fellow man? If the bridegroom were to come, would he find you where you're supposed to be? Third question. Is there anything in your life which you would be embarrassed or shamed at his coming? There's this preacher man from long ago named Jonathan Edwards who believed in a principle that Jesus taught in his parable so strongly he felt compelled to put it down on paper in the form of a resolution. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Resolved never to lose one moment of time to improve it in the most profitable way I can. Resolved Never to do anything out of revenge. Resolved 
never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. It's pretty awesome resolution. <sighs> that was a pretty big yawn. So this mom wrote to Catholic Digest saying that one day she was heading up the stairs with a basket containing a load of folded clothes, hurting three little ones in front of her for bedtime. And the eldest one, Peggy, who was then in kindergarten, picked that moment to begin one of those questions that seemed to intrigue all children. Mommy, she asked, if it were the end of the world and everyone was getting ready to die, the mother stopped, shifted a basket on her hip, said a quick ultra prayer for wisdom to answer this question. Yes, the mother prodded her daughter. Well, the little girl finished with her theological inquiry. At the end of the world came, would you have to take your library books back? So the young lady, I guess, didn't want to leave anything unfinished in her life. So how about you? Got anything unfinished in your life? Something needs to be taken care of? Is there anything about which you would be embarrassed or ashamed of if the bridegroom were to come today? Here's another question concerning the uncertainty of tomorrow. Do people you love know how much you appreciate them? You know, it's so often that we say things too late. We wait too long and miss that last chance to say I love you or please forgive me or thank you or even I'm sorry. It's story time again about a man named William Stidger. Stidger. He was a businessman who experienced a Emotional breakdown, panic attack, the whole works. He was completely depleted, his enthusiasm for life gone. He was so depressed and he sought help. But he made no progress. One day, an insightful friend looked at him, concerned, and said to William, When was the last time you singled out one person in your life? an acquaintance, a friend, who had been gracious to you and expressed that appreciation. A question actually kind of pissed off our uh, protagonist here, Mr. William. Wait, wait, hold on, right? And in isolation of his living room, he selected some stationery. For the first time in two decades, he remembered this high school English teacher. He had not even thought of her in years, but she did take an interest in him during high school. She had helped him discover a love for poetry that he never knew he had. Yeah. She imagined that he might be worth something after all. So he wrote her a letter. It was a simple one, but... It was effective. Three days later, by return mail, a letter came from her. And the tremulous handwriting of a long-retired teacher, she wrote, My eyes are blinded with tears as I write. You're the first student in all my career who has ever written me a letter to express thanks. I'm going to keep this as long as I live. 
With her response to his letter in mind, he thought of someone else. So he wrote another letter and then another. You know, he didn't even notice that he was all better again. He just discovered the joy of expressing his love and gratitude towards others. So if you knew that the bridegroom was coming today, there's some people with whom you would want to express that appreciation for? Or how about your love? Because who knows what tomorrow may bring? Why not do it now? And here's a final question concerning the coming of the bridegroom. Would he find you a stranger or a lifelong acquaintance? See, when Queen Mary of Orange was about to die, her chaplain wished to console her with some reading of scripture. He was concerned whether she was prepared for this journey. She replied, I have not left the matter till this hour. She was repaired. And an old Scotsman expressed the same sense of assured preparedness as he faced eternity. His friend offered some sayings at the end. He replied, I thatched my house when the weather was warm. Meaning, he was ready. See, Dr. John Mitchell relates a story about seeing a friend who was in his last day of his life. When Dr. Mitchell came to his bedside, the man reached out, grasped his hand. Oh, John, he whispered, I'm so sick. His head dropped back, and he thought he was gone, but after a moment, he opened his eyes again. John, is that you? He asked, and Mr. Mitchell replied, yeah, it's me. The dying man said, well, shit, I'm so disappointed. I was expecting to see the Lord, and all I saw was you. I guess he knew that his Redeemer lives. We have no idea when the bridegroom is coming. But it pays to be well prepared. It pays to have a sense of urgency that says that it might be any moment. The NFL did a study on scoring in the, NFL, in the games and discovered that the last two minutes of the first half and the final two minutes of the second, more points are scored than in any other 20 minutes of the football game. So, imagine if you could have the bridegroom is coming today. You Have you done the most you can with the opportunities he's given you? Have you been faithful in your service to God and your fellow man? Have you gotten rid of anything in your life which you might be embarrassed or ashamed? Can you think of a person to whom you ought to express your appreciation and love? Finally, how is your relationship with your bridegroom? Is he still a stranger or... Do you know him as a best friend, as the best friend you have? Some people in Iowa read a weather forecast column in the newspaper some time back. They said there's a 95, there's a 90% chance of tomorrow. I personally hope the chances are better than that, but who knows? Let's not be stupid. Let's get ready. There are Jews in the world. There are Buddhists, there are Hindus and Mormons, and then there are those that follow Mohammed's but I've never been one of them.
so big, so absolutely huge. Do you think maybe he's compensating for something? <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. What do we learn? I don't know, sir. I don't fucking know either.